0: fair is going on today, and you are the faithful remnant who are here at church this morning. I want you to know that God has a special place in his heart for the remnant. You're doing the right thing. (laughs) Open your Bible, if you would, to Acts 1, and we're going to be in a couple places this morning, do something similar to what we did last week. We'll do a medley of verses that we're going to look through in the book of Acts. Um, So open your Bible to Acts 1. Also open your Bible to Romans 6. So Acts 1, Romans 6. We'll end this morning at Romans 6, but we've got to do a survey of some passages in the book of Acts. I have felt that as we've been going through this sermon series, looking at the church and what the Bible has to say about it and how if we're... Desiring to be a New Testament church, we should read the Bible and say, Lord, no matter what, if this is what the Bible says, we'll, we will risk our tradition to, to do what you have called us to do. Um, I have felt myself looking at passages in Scripture and pouring over the things we'll be looking at, and I feel like, man, we're just going upstream against a lot of modern day evangelicalism, and if that's the, tr- that's the case, so be it. And so, uh, I'll show you what I mean by way of a story. A few years ago, I was in a Zoom seminar uh, with several other pastors and church leaders, and there was a a pastor who had had a success story in California where we had been serving, and um, he had brought in a lot of, of people, a lot of lost people into their church, and things were really booming, and so they wanted to interview him and say, what was the secret sauce? What did you do? And... Um, the more you listen to him, he would be what we've been describing over the last couple of weeks. We've been using this term, seeker sensitive, and essentially meaning using a variety of resources at his disposal with a priority towards the lost person to bring them in. The priority for the church was on the lost person to bring them in, um, and a telltale sign though of how this approach of seeker sensitism was going was a phrase that he kept using you may have heard it before it's very it's been very popular over the last few years is that you get them in by this phrase be, that they would belong before they believe maybe you've heard that before belonging before you believe and essentially what that means is you want to show that person the beauty of the christian community and so no strings attached you bring them into the body the lord willing they see the the joy of other Christians around them, and over time, it'll be infectious. They're part of what you're doing, and over time, they'll believe in it. They'll see your actions and say, I want that for, the, for myself. In a nutshell, there's more to it, but that's a short version. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but Michael Lawrence, uh, I put this post, if you follow me on Facebook, um, up last night. Uh, he wrote a, a blog article, post whatever, Uh, about how on its surface, this idea of getting unbelievers into the community of Christians sounds like belonging before you believe. That sounds so welcoming. That sounds like a really good idea. By the way, you should be welcoming. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. But if you really think about the approach, it actually has some serious consequences that you have to think of. The, The ripple effect. One of them would be if you bring an unbeliever in and you give them a sense of belonging to the church body without ever confronting them with the gospel, and you tell them that they belong without believing, then you have never confronted them with their sin, friend. And you could have someone being a part of the church feeling like they belong, and they've never been confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you can unintentionally provide a false sense of eternal security. They are just a fellow traveler as an unbeliever with you and a believer approaching the same destination. And and so Lauren says, we have to watch out to make sure we're not giving a false sense of eternal security. Uh, A second one, which is quite obvious, is that when you bring unbelievers into the fold and you say that you belong, you can unintentionally redefine the church. Think about it this way. The world already has an inner mixture of unbelievers and believers. Uh, You Think of the parable of the wheat and the tares that Jesus talks about in Matthew. You already have that in the world. How should the church be distinct from that field that is the world? Well, it should be a church that is made up of believers, right? And so when you add in unbelievers, you, you confuse that and you go, what's the difference then at that point between the church and the world? It redefines the church. And so I want you to hear me again. I just want to make this very clear. I'm not saying we shouldn't be welcoming, but I am saying that we should be very careful in our desire to reach lost people that we do not unintentionally start doing practices that redefine inappropriately the church or give people a false sense of security. Back to my Zoom story. Inevitably, the question came up as this guy is talking about his seeker-sensitive approach of belonging before you believe eventually the question came up how do you know this unbeliever is really a part of this this believing community like what are the signs what are the markers along the way where you can go okay that's that's the moment right there and have you ever been in one of those meetings where a simple question is asked but you have people who are too smart for their own good they figure out how to muddy the waters and make it as complicated as possible that's exactly what happened here Usually words like nuance are used because it's, it's kind of nuanced, and, and yet yeah, it's a really good question, and, and we have to ask ourselves, maybe it's different in this church or that church, or this context, that context, and they go on and on and on, and no answer was given. How do you know an unbeliever who's been showing up to your church really has, has made that switch to buy-in to what your church is doing, and it took all that was within me, friend, to not press that unmute button and yell out at the top of my lungs, baptism, duh, that's kind of our thing, right? That's kind of our historical thing, baptism. Isn't that what the Anabaptists, those who came before us 500 years ago, were willing to die for? You know that story, Felix Monts who gets baptized and then Ulrich Zwingli says, that's how you wanna do it? We're really gonna baptize you? And they take him to the Lamont River and drown him? That story happened over and over again in the early period of the church, of the Anabaptist church movement. People who said, we believe that to be a part of the local church, you must believe. And when you believe, then you're baptized. You're not merely a part of Christendom, born into Christendom. You must believe and make that decision. And so baptism is how the church identifies her members, Historically, that's a true truth for our movement. I think that's scripture, as we'll show. But that is, that's the line where someone says publicly, "I belong to Christ." With that said, let's look at how baptism. What I want to do today is I want to look at how baptism, its relationship to the individual. We'll look at that today. Next week, we'll want to look at how it's a door that you open it up to, and it leads into the believing community the church. And then we'll look at a very popular topic the week after, all within baptism, how when you enter into that body, the church, uh, how there's this thing called church discipline. And I know you are so looking forward to talking about church discipline. It's in the Bible. We must deal with it. The individual and baptism today. In the New Testament, there's, there's two practices. Some have called them sacraments, others have called them ordinances, that we are called to be a part of. When I say sacrament, I know that some of us, maybe with a, a, a Lutheran, uh, Catholic background, will hear uh, potentially a, a, a sign that conveys, conveys grace apart from faith. And, and if that's what comes to your mind, we're going to use the word ordinance, but know that we're referring to the same thing, but without that Catholic meaning loaded into it. And so we use the word ordinance because that's what Jesus ordained for us to do. You you read the Gospels at the Last Supper. Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he has the disciples partake of the Lord's Supper and what we refer to as communion, the Eucharist. Different words refer to the same thing. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. After Jesus rises from the dead, the Great Commission we've looked at, he says if you want to make disciples, you do it by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And so he gives these two ordinances to us specifically. That's one qualification for a true ordinance. The second one that he gives, or the second one that we have from Scripture, is that a true ordinance is a picture. You've never thought about this. It's a true picture of the gospel message itself. It's not hard to imagine that with the Lord's Supper. You have the bread and you have the juice, right? That points clearly to the finished work of Christ on the cross. His body given for you, his blood shed for you. You see, that's the gospel message right there. Essentially, we eat that message whenever we take of communion. Baptism, when someone confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're buried with Christ, he who died, and they're raised with him, he who rose from the dead. You see, every single time someone gets baptized at Bethesda, you're seeing that acted out parable being demonstrated right in front of you. It's, the preacher could be getting it dead wrong, but if the ordinance is done correctly, that's the message being, of the gospel being preached correctly to you. Um, this stands in contrast with the Catholic Church. Uh, if you grew up in that, they have seven of these of what we're calling ordinances. They have, if you've gone through this, confirmation, penance, last rites that a priest will come do at the end of somebody's life. Marriage is considered one. Holy orders for priests when they enter the priesthood. But if you think about each of these, marriage, holy orders, and so on, do any of them demonstrate that acted out picture of the gospel the way baptism and the Lord's Supper do? Does marriage do that? Um, Does do, do, do holy orders do that? No. The answer is no. Uh, if I could maybe step on some of the toes of our own tradition, if you've, some of us may have come from this, there's historically been Mennonites um, in the past and some in the present who had a third ordinance called foot washing, foot washing. And so they would go, well, doesn't Jesus do this in John 13 at the Last Supper? And he encourages his disciples to do that? Yes, of course. But ask yourself that question. Remember that qualification. Does foot washing demonstrate the finished work of Christ on that cross of death and resurrection for us? I would argue that it does not. It doesn't give you that same picture. Is it wrong to, as a symbolic gesture, to wash somebody's feet? I would not say that that's wrong. Uh, I would say that it's an act of compassion but don't think for a moment it rises to the prominence of these two ordinances. There are two that we are not asked to partake of or commanded to partake of. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they are signs of the saving truth of the gospel. Okay? So here's my claim about baptism. I want to put this up on the screen, and I will look this way. Baptism happens when the believer this is this definition of baptism here, is immersed in the name of the Trinity, publicly confessing his faith in Christ and symbolizing his identification with Christ's death and resurrection as he enters into the church. That's a mouthful right there. We want to spend the rest of our time just explaining that right there. It is that moment, that moment where you are immersed in water, you confess publicly your faith, symbolizes that you identify with Christ. And you don't just do it alone. You enter into the doorway of the church. That's what we'll look at next week. So, friends, I've done a lot of talking so far, but it's not a sermon unless we get into the Bible. So let's do that. The word that we use for baptism in the Scriptures, we just carry over from the Greek. We don't translate it. We just go, here, it's baptisma. We just take it right over. And that word... Uh, most cases means straightforward reading is a plunging, a immersion, a dipping. Uh, Baptists have loved to point out that this is what happens when ships would sink. They would be submerged. You read the accounts of Jesus' baptism. in, for example, Matthew 3, he goes, he goes in the water and he comes up out of the water, presumably because he had to get, it's a full body experience. He had to get him, his whole self wet. I was at the Vatican in Rome a few years ago and there's a picture I want to put up on the screen and it can show you how tradition plays a role in how people interpret. And so for them, yes, Jesus goes into the water but, well, he, gets, he has water poured over his head, right? And so you see how people have, have used their tradition to inform how they understand what Jesus did. I would argue, if you're getting into the Jordan River, all you've got getting wet, not just your toes like that. Okay? There's 96 uses of this word, baptisma, or baptizane, the verb. We're not going to get through all of them, but what does Scripture say? We've hit the Great Commission in various ways, commanded to be baptized as we become disciples in the name of our triune Lord. But you read through the book of Acts, what do you see? Let's walk through this together. Acts 2, when you get to the last bit of the chapter, Acts 2, 38, the Jews are convicted of their sin, They're convicted of their sin. They say, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, get baptized, you'll receive the Spirit. And then we're told at the end, verse 41, I believe it is there, that those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls which tells you that they kept track of who made up that membership right there, who was a part of that body initially. Um, You have some people who say are disparaging and referring to large churches, but the first church you have is a large church of of Jerusalem believers right off the bat. You know the order. They heard Peter preach the word, they heard the word, and then responded in baptism, and the Spirit was poured out into their life. You go to Acts 8, you read Acts 8, go there, Acts 8, 14, okay? It is music to my ears to hear pages turning of their Bibles. I love it, okay? Acts 8, 14, the Spirit comes to the Samaritans. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They heard the word, they believed the word, and then they were baptized. In this case, in this case the Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on them. Presumably so that it would be so clear for the Jews that were showing up to lay hands on them that the Spirit is not only for Jewish people, but it is for even their half-brothers, the Samaritans. And so they hear the Word, they believe the Word, baptized, and the Spirit comes into their life. Acts 9, you can look at Acts 9 sometime, Saul on the road to Damascus, he doesn't hear the Word as much as he is encountered by the Word himself. It's a little bit different in his case, but, he, but he's encountered by the Word and Ananias shows up, scales fall from his eyes. He believes the word, and then he is baptized. Belief, reception of the spirit, and conversion leading to baptism. Keep going here. Acts 10, what about the Gentiles? So we've hit the Jews, the Samaritans, Paul. What about the Gentiles? The Gentiles, Cornelius and his household. And the passage reads, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The word is preached. In this case, it's fascinating. Peter doesn't even finish his, his, his gospel presentation, and they're already, boom, believing. The evidence is that they're speaking in tongues. A, poor, a powerful outpouring happens in that moment, and they believe, they receive the Spirit. And then Peter says, how could we not baptize them? This powerful moments. Peter will then talk about in the next chapter, when he gives his report back to the church in Jerusalem, man, something powerful happened. And what happened to them happened to us at the first, at Pentecost. In Acts 16, you see the same thing? Philippian jailer, right there? Philippian jailer. In Acts 16, 30, you want to turn there? Paul and Silas are singing praises to the Lord and then an earthquake occurs, and it opens up all the jail cell doors. The Philippian jailer hears this, sees it, and he goes, I'm a dead man. And he's about to take his own life. Paul shows up and says, don't do that. And then this man asked the most important question anybody could ever ask in history. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and all your household. And they spoke the word to the Lord to him and to all who were baptized in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized once, he and all his family. Hold on to that. Gospel is preached, heard and believed, and they're baptized. Some will take this passage, you should know this by the way, that bit at the end right there. It says, he and all his household. And they'll say, well, that seems surely there were infants involved in this. It wasn't just the adult believers. That would be little kids and infants. Surely they were baptized as well. To which I would argue, one, this is an argument argument from silence. It actually doesn't say that. But secondly, if you read verse 32 more clearly, it says specifically that they spoke to these people and they heard the word. That they spoke the word. And, And that tells us that To speak the word, it has to go that information from point A to point B, ears that would understand and hear the word. So they spoke the word, and then they responded properly. Acts 19, last one, we're just hitting all the major ones in Acts. In Acts 19, 5, we're told that there are Ephesian disciples of John the Baptist who had prepared the way of the Lord by his baptism unto repentance. Get ready, the Messiah is coming. And they received that baptism, but when Paul sh- shows up, they say, have you received this Holy Spirit? And these Ephesian disciples go, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And that tells you clearly, if you, they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, he hasn't come into their lives. They haven't heard the gospel message. Paul then begins to clarify John's purpose in coming versus Jesus and his mission. And, and then we're told, on the hearing of this, they were baptized, they heard And then they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and then began speaking in tongues and prophesying, about 12 of them in all. We haven't even talked about Crispus and Corinth who was baptized. We haven't even talked about Apollos in the same chapter, chapter 18, the famous account in the Ethiopian eunuch's life in in Acts 8. But in every single example, there's a pattern here, Okay? Notice, I have not said all this without a purpose. I am aware that in a city like our own, with over 30 different churches that exist, there is a variety of denominations, and so likely we have a number of those that are represented. Either that's where you currently are at, if you're visiting here this morning, or that's the tradition that you came out of before you came to Bethesda. And so with all of those varieties of traditions, uh, there is therefore going to be different views on baptism. And so let's not assume that just because that's the church that we came from, even for us here at Bethesda, that we have it right. Let us hold our traditions, our feet to the fire, and we let the word correct us over and over and over again. What is that New Testament pattern? The gospel is preached, it is heard and believed and the person receives baptism. You notice in the book of Acts, the Spirit does show up at various points in that order, but the Spirit is also included as well. There's not one place where you'll find anyone as an infant being baptized. Some who have argued for this have said, sure, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And I can't help but think of the words of Balthazar Hubmeyer 500 years ago, famous Catholic turned Anabaptist who said this. If that's true, I can't help myself. I, have to, I must read this. Then I may also baptize my dog and my donkey. Circumcise little girls, mumble prayers, and hold vigils for the dead. Call wood and idol St. Peter and St. Paul. Take infants to the Lord's Supper and bless palm branches, herbs, salt, and butter, fat, and water, and sell the mass as a sacrifice. For it is not prohibited anywhere in explicit words that we shouldn't do these things. You see what he's saying? That's that's a very Reformation way to say that's an argument from silence. So just because it doesn't mention it, that doesn't mean that it's therefore there. You have to admit that nowhere in Scripture do you have infants being baptized. Instead, the word is necessary for people to hear it and believe it. So I want to put this to you. If, If you're here with us this morning and you were baptized as an infant, wouldn't you want to get the approach of scripture and what it commands and what it describes to us correct if we're following the pattern of scripture if you're baptized without faith it is no baptism at all it's just a getting wet and we would encourage you at Bethesda to get baptized for the first time i would also say if you're here and you've thought that your infant baptism saves you that's what gets you into heaven understand it is not the work of your baptism but it is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what saves. Believe in his work and not your own. So we sum all of this up. I think we want to put it this, this way. This is the key, friends. Baptism by immersion is the commandment for believers and believers only. Something else that is crucial for us to understand is that baptism in and of itself, the water doesn't save you. 1 Corinthians 1.17, I'll just read this. Paul speaks to the Corinthians who are placing a superiority within themselves. Well, I was baptized by Paul. Some says, I was baptized by Apollos and others. And there's a, a pride that is welling up in the Corinthian community. And Paul responds and he says, Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Do you notice how he puts a priority on the the ministry of the word for him over baptism. There's a priority there. Preaching is more important than the baptism. First Peter three twenty one. If you're shrewd in here this morning, you go well. Well, Pastor, what about First Peter three twenty one? Doesn't it say that baptism saves you? Yes, it does say that. There's a lot we could look in the passage that leads up to that, but you got to look at what Paul, pardon me, Peter says immediately afterwards. Looking at the witness of Scripture, it says this. Baptism, yes, it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not the washing, not the the cleansing, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. It's not the waters that save you in and of themselves. It is your faith acting through the baptism that you receive. You must have faith as you appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism doesn't save you, but being obedient to get baptized demonstrates that you have a legitimate faith. You've heard me say this a hundred times. I keep saying this as long as I'm here. You are saved by faith alone, but your faith is never alone. Once you become a Christian, you demonstrate that faith, and the first step of obedience is baptism. Okay, we've laid the foundation Now, let's speak to three different groups here this morning. Unbaptized believers, I want to speak to unbaptized believers, children with parents who attend Bethesda, and then lastly, those who have received baptism by a different mode than immersion. Um, I think the evidence is clear, friend, if you haven't been baptized, um, that the scripture tells us this is something we must do. I want to give you some objections that myself and the elders have been reading about that people say, this is why I don't get baptized. And maybe this is you. So we're speaking to you in this way this morning. Maybe you say I've already been baptized as an infant. I think we've already addressed scripture that says, no, scripture doesn't, doesn't provide for that. Believer's baptism is the right way forward. Perhaps you, you say, I don't want to offend my parents who baptized me as an infant, I just respond to you and say, we will all stand before the judgment seat of of Christ and no one will be accountable for your actions except for you. And I would say, I believe that your parents were doing the best that they knew at the time. They had all of the right intentions, but right intentions does not trump the responsibility that we've been given. Consider the opinion that matters most and it's Christ's. Maybe some people will say, well, my non-Christian family will reject me. This is something that is true somewhat in the States, but is far more true that people encounter in other parts of the world. You sit down with a Tony Haug sometime, and he'll tell you about how in Japan there are those who believe in Christ and they start getting involved, and their, their community, their family is fine with that. But when they draw that line with baptism, that point of no return, that's where the rejection kicks in. Uh, that's where you see also with Muslims, as are very strong examples. There is a price to be paid when you go public with your faith in Christ and not in Allah. If you go all the way with Christ, you'll be alone or you'll be cast out. I think that can be true even within our own town. There are those of us who, the world religions are here, friends Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Buddhism, there is that. If you drive outside of town, you'll see that, that little Buddhist temple that, that, is, that is outside of town that is, uh, is there off the highway. Those who are for all practical purposes living a life of, of humanism, practical atheism. It's their own religion in a way. But when they believe, they walk away from that community that they once knew. That is a price to be paid when you have to walk away from that community. But I would remind you of the truth of jesus's words truly i say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time house and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life i want you to know friend if you're considering that price in the end it is worth it hold on to your life you'll lose it you give up your life for Jesus and his sake, you will find it. The most popular objection to getting baptized, people will say is, I'm afraid to speak in public. That's that's probably the most well-known one I come across. But I will tell you, I've never come across someone afraid to get baptized, who afterwards gives their testimony, goes underneath those waters, and then comes to me afterwards and goes, I wish I hadn't done that. Every single person says, I did it. I did it. I remember in 2009 after I had believed in Christ and I got baptized at First Baptist Church Universal City by David Lindo, coming up out of those waters, putting my hands up, and on that front row seeing my family, my father who doesn't know Christ, he got to see what was happening there. It was a testimony for him. Got to see other family members and friends and they were standing and cheering. And it wasn't a celebration of what I had done. It was a celebration of what Christ had done through me. Friend, if you are nervous about getting baptized, I want you to consider the blessing it will be that when you finally are faithful to do it, you will be blessing not only, it won't be just a blessing for yourself, it'll be a blessing for all of us who witness you do it. We will get to see the gospel being enacted in your life. I remember when I came out of those waters, it was public, and I was like, well, I can't go back now. Everybody, I've been outed. Everybody knows now I'm a Christian. Remind you of that word from Mark Dever that says, the easiest command Jesus will ever give you is to get wet. It just gets more difficult after that. If you're nervous about reading off your testimony in front of people, we will walk alongside you. That's what I love getting to do. This is why we don't practice spontaneous baptisms at Bethesda. We want there to be an intentionality in what we do. We want people to really understand what they're doing and bless others by giving their testimony in baptism. The last one, perhaps you're here, and you say, I've been a believer for a long time. Isn't it too late? Maybe that pierces you like an arrow when I say that. Everybody thinks you're baptized, but you're not actually. And I just want to say to you, it is never too late to do what is right. You might say, I'm embarrassed. I've thought about it for years, and I've never done it. I just want to say, you will be a blessing too, friend, when you stand up and do this. It's never never too late to do the right thing. There's no shame. So that's the first group, unbaptized believers. What about children at Bethesda? When I sit down with people for baptism, one of the things that I've noticed is probably about 50% of them either had received infant baptism or they were baptized at a young age, and the story goes something like this. They prayed a prayer with mom and dad when they were maybe four or five years old, and then they got baptized at a really young age. Like for me, I can remember, I have a memory in my mind right now of sitting down and praying a prayer with my mom when I was like four years old, I can't tell you if that's actually a real memory or a constructed memory from the story that my mom told me. I can't tell you, what, but I have a picture in my mind. So, a lot of people, that's what happens. Really young, they make a profession with mom and dad and then they get dunked. But later, when they get older, usually high school, college age, early 20s, and they have an independent moment where their faith becomes their own, and they surrender really to the Lord. They begin to look back on that moment when they were really, really young and go, well, if I have genuine faith now, what was that back there? What was that which I did before? And they'll sit in my office and go, I don't think I received a genuine believer's baptism. I received a baptism without genuine faith. I think I need to get baptized for the first time now. And that's, and that's what happens. I've had that over and over. And unfortunately, this scenario is far too common. I choose to believe it's good intentions on behalf of the parents, but I also think it has a lot to do, the person who has the most blame is the pastor who's doing the discernment process. And more often than not, you'll get pastors who I think are more concerned about padding their baptism numbers for their annual booklet than actually discerning a genuine faith. The irony is that you baptize younger and younger and younger, you end up in the same problem with infant baptism. Little children who cannot understand and hear properly and comprehend the gospel. The problem, though, is that there's no appendix in the back of Romans that tells us how to navigate this. It just says believers should be baptized. So what should we do? Our elders have been praying and talking and working through this, and we have thought, How can we best shepherd the souls of our people? So here's what we've noticed. That genuine, independent faith, separate from mom and dad, like we said, begins to happen in high school, college age, right there. There's that moment where you say, this is my own. It becomes independent apart from their parents. And so as a guidance to you, mom and dad, we just want to say this as elders. Don't rush. Don't rush this. There's no need to rush this. You would rather have your child be baptized with a genuine faith than do something to please you, because that will be a counterfeit. And so, because we notice that that genuine faith really is discernible on behalf of the church in those teenage years, that fruit of faith, our practice and that we want to recommend to you is wait. we we'll wait until until they're in high school, age fourteen. And then we'll sit down and let's have that conversation. I want you to understand the motive behind what we're saying here. And Before I even say that, I, I want to say this to you. Several of you have been baptized. Maybe you were baptized at age 8, 9, and 10. I am not invalidating by any means your baptism. I want to affirm that I'm so thankful that you are here and that that was a genuine faith that happened for you when you were 8 years old. Genuinely happy in that. Nevertheless, in general, I know that a 16-year-old, his profession of faith versus an 8-year-old's is far more discernible Because he is making an independent decision. And our desire is to get the candidates right. So here's our passion, our motive as elders. We want to steward people's souls really well. And the best way we know how to do this is this. We will not always be perfect. We will probably put someone before you to get baptized who will eventually sway from their faith. We will do our best though. But in asking kids to wait till high school to come forward and present them, we want to present good candidates as elders in front of you, the church. So this is a soul care issue for us that we want to get it right in this way. So we take it very seriously. The last group. Those of you who have been baptized by another mode besides immersion. All of you Prairie Bible people, let's go. Here we go. So we've said that baptism is by immersion. We talked about how the word baptism suggests immersion. The history of the church, this was the practice the first couple hundred years. You look at the Eastern Orthodox Church today. They baptize infants. They get that part wrong. But from the early on, they were, they were dunking the infants. Go see these video, videos on YouTube. It's, it's a little bit shocking when you see them. Next, 838, you see that the Ethiopian eunuch is in his chariot and then gets down into the water and then comes up out of it, telling us that there's, there's a full-body experience that's happening here. And immersion also clearly demonstrates that death and rising again. But we have, in the history of the church, those who have been not immersed, but have received pouring and sprinkling. What about them? What do we do with you who have received that? As elders, we've also looked at this, and and here's what we want to say to you. Paul, again, doesn't give an appendix in the back of Romans that addresses this. While we acknowledge that the preferred mode in Scripture is immersion, we see the legitimacy of, of this act that you receive by a believer's act through faith, baptism. We want to recognize the legitimacy of that act. And so we will receive you into membership if you've received a believer's baptism done by a different mode than immersion. This is, this is the, the best, this is real church life here. We're not doing theology in a test to, but in the reality of church life. And so this is our guidance as elders to unbaptized Christians, children of believing parents and to those who have received baptism by immersion of another mode. Okay? We've said a lot this morning. Can we end with Romans 6? Go there briefly and we'll be done together. Paul is speaking to the church of Rome. It's probably one of the most well-known passages in Paul on baptism. And he says this to those who might go I've been forgiven. I've been set free. Let me just keep on sinning now. And he says to them, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you who not know that all of us who have been baptized, note, by the way, friend, there is an assumption that everyone who believes and is part of the church in Rome has been baptized. They've been baptized into Christ. We're baptized into his death. We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look, I know that there's a portion of us this morning, you may have been tuning out this whole time because you have been baptized and you go, this is for everybody else. Now is the time to tune in, okay? Now is the time to tune in. Do you get what Paul is saying here? That when you are baptized, you are being linked to the work of Christ. He died, and so you died. He was buried, you were buried. He rose from the dead, you rise as well. And so if you've been unified to Christ in this way, act like it, is what he says. Act like it. Some of us have over time so learned how to identify with our pet sin issues that we bought into the lie That when the temptation presents itself, it's inevitable that we'll give into that sin. It's inevitable that I will be a slave to my sin. But friend, let me just wake you up if I can. If I can do my best here. Who told you you were obligated to keep on falling into that same sin that you've been giving into your whole life? Who told you you were obligated to give into that? Not Jesus. Not him. It's like you're acting like a prisoner who's been in that jail cell for years The jailer comes and unlocks the door, opens the door, your status has been changed, you're now free, but you choose to sit in that fetal position, the door's open and you're still sitting there. Your status has changed, you're free, but you're pretending now to be something that you are no longer a prisoner. And I want to say to you that if you are falling habitually into those sins of the past which you are already dead to in reality... And you fall into them and say, there is no hope for me. I want to say, you are pretending to be something that you are no longer. If you have been unified to Christ, you aren't defined by your sin, your mistakes, your mess-ups, all of those things. You are defined by the work of what Christ has done. Look to what baptism points to. Remind yourself of that again. It points to that moment where you were changed. The old you is gone, whether you believe it or not today. And the new you in Christ is here to stay regardless of how you feel. You may say, it has been so long since I felt that initial fire when I first believed and got baptized. Maybe I, was, maybe I was being over-idealistic. And I would say, no, no. Brother, sister, just because you may have felt the flame go out and it's dormant right now and you have swayed, that does not mean that Jesus has swayed for you. Nothing has changed. You are still free. The jail cell door is open, and now you must get up and walk out of it. See the reality of the beauty of being unified to Christ of what your baptism points to, and you hold on to that this morning. And You hold on and internalize those words of verse 11 of chapter 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are you're no longer a slave, no longer a sinner, you're dead to it and you're alive to Christ. This is what baptism points to. This is what it's all about. So we've looked this morning at what it means to be baptized for the individual. The question then becomes what happens when you get a whole bunch of those individuals together? How does that believing community work when you walk through the door of baptism? What does it mean to be part of the Congregation, members of that. That's what next week is all about. But until then, let's hold on to this reality of what baptism point baptism points to. That we've received that spirit. We've been baptized by the spirit, receiving Christ, and we've been unified to the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's Weekly Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.